Open God's holy word to the letter of 2 Peter. Our focus this morning will be on 2 Peter verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading the letter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we have the more prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, 
Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with words, with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world, condemned of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery. They're uh, 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 insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, 
that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him, by Him, without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us Forgive us of all of our all the times that we come to your word expecting so little. All the times we read it without the proper reverence that it's due. Forgive us that we're so complacent whenever it's clearly your desire that grace and peace be multiplied to us in knowing you. So, Father, grant your Spirit now to speak to us as your Word is preached. In Christ's name, Amen. 
Second Peter is regarded by some as a backwater fishing hole, aptly but inaccurately attributed to the uncouth fishermen from Galilee. One author says it is regarded as the dark corner of the New Testament. Another commentator writes, 2 Peter has been termed the ugly stepchild of the New Testament. It's not just that the extended prophetic denunciation is unpalatable to some people, and the apparent description of the destruction of the universe in chapter 3 is disturbing, but that many readers wonder whether the book is genuine and belongs in the canon at all. Simeon Peter might surprise you that those are the most argued words in this little letter. Some of the most contested in the New Testament. There are multiple arguments against Peter's authorship. I want to rehearse just two of them. Not because they're more weighty or serious than the others, but just to show you a sampling so that you can sense they're all equally ridiculous. The first is that this letter couldn't have been written by Peter because there are so many unique terms in it. Indeed, there are 57 words used in this letter that are used nowhere else in the New Testament. Note how foolish this objection is, though. We have two short letters by Peter. And from so small a sample pool we think we can determine that this isn't Peter's normal way of expressing himself. Whenever Dr. Sproul enrolled in doctoral studies in Holland, his first assignment included reading some 25 Dutch titles, of which he knew nothing. And so he began with his Dutch-English dictionary in hand, painstakingly working through a book. As he came to a new word, he'd write the Dutch word on one side, the English word on the other. He made it through about a, made through about a page the first day. Well, the first two titles he tackled in this way were by the same author on the same subject. And whenever he finished volume 2, he had some 5,000 cards that he had not already made cards for. 5,000 words not used in the first book that were in the second. 5,000. And biblical scholars want to make a fuss about 56. Though... Well, such objections make me think of Dr. Budzizweski's quip that though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity one must be highly educated and intelligent to achieve. Second, others will say that the style of this letter is too different from First Peter for him to have written this letter. You might recall whenever we began First Peter... We spoke of how the language is so refined and polished that many scholars doubt that, first Peter, that, that Peter penned that first letter. 
And so now you have largely that same pool of scholars telling us that he couldn't have written 2 Peter because it's too different from that other letter that he didn't write. (laughs) Further, it's not as if the church has never known someone who could write children's fantasy, adult science fiction, popular apologetics works, and academic critiques. No, Lewis could not have written the Narnia tales, the Paralandra series, mere Christianity, and studies in medieval and Renaissance literature. Had to be other parties involved. When you look at all these objections, you realize that though there is some objective analysis, there are 57 unique words here. The style is notably different. Though there is some objective analysis, the conclusions are completely subjective with no hard evidence, no witnesses being called forward. So let's turn from this modern scholarship to the testimony of the church historically concerning this book. You see, the best scholarship concerning the Bible is done within the church. The Trinitarian orthodoxy of the early creeds cannot be improved upon. And it was, pro- it was produced not, not by some academic elite serving in independent institutions of education. It was produced by churchmen serving the church. Michael Allen and Scott Swain argue that Christian theology flourishes in the school of Christ, meaning the church. The Spirit of Christ teaches the church in sufficient and unmixed verity such that the church need not seek theological understanding from any other source or principle. They go on to speak of the church as God's cultivated field where He has planted and sown and intends for theology to grow. And so though some in the church have struggled with the authenticity of Second Peter, the overwhelming testimony of the church has been that of affirmation. And you should listen to the testimony of the church concerning this letter, not because the church stands over the word, as Rome says, where the church makes the word of God. No, it's the word of God that makes the church. God speaks and things that were not come into existence. But you should listen to the testimony of the church because it is to the church that the self-authenticating word bears testimony of itself. It is not to goats that the Word of God is addressed. And so the sheep shouldn't ask goats for their opinion concerning the Good Shepherd's food. Paul tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in that same chapter, he goes on to say how he imparts spiritual truths to those who are spiritual by the Spirit. Such scholars are not sheep. They are the scoffers that Peter speaks of in chapter 3. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, Peter says. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Uh, 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Hear the word of Christ. And you're, you're to remember these things, knowing this, first of all, that in the last, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Such scoffers speak with a serpent's lisp, asking, did God really say? Peter wrote this letter. And he wrote it as a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Slave and apostle. Now we're all slaves of Christ because Christ purchased us out of our bondage to sin to Himself as His own by His precious blood. We're all redeemed, purchased to God, slaves of God, slaves of Christ, every one of us. But the way these terms are paired suggests something unique here. Moses, David, Jeremiah, Amos, many who served in a specific way are referred to as servants or slaves of Yahweh. And they're being paired together here, I think has the idea that Peter's apostleship and his slavery are intermeshed so that the apostleship is the expression of his being a slave to Christ. And while a slave was the lowest position in society, an apostle was the highest position in the body of Christ. But this highest position is completely expressed as one of total submission to the Lord. So that whenever Peter speaks, he doesn't speak as he desires. He speaks as a slave, communicating the desires of his master. And it's as such, as the apostles function in this way that they are said, Ephesians 2.20, to be the foundation of the church. What this means is that whenever you scoff at the slave, you scoff at the Lord. The real beef that such scholars have with 2 Peter isn't the messenger. It's the message who is also the Lord of the messenger Revealing himself through his apostle. Now to whom does the apostle write here? Peter addresses his audience not in terms of where they stand geographically, but where they stand covenantally, where they stand judicially before God. First they have obtained a faith. He's writing to those who have obtained a faith. Peter is writing not to goats, but to sheep. All of the scripture is addressed to the sheep. Whenever Peter received the Pentateuch, it was for Israel. And whenever Moses, did I say Peter? Whenever Moses received the Pentateuch, it was for Israel. Whenever David penned those songs, they were to be the songs of the children of Zion. Whenever the prophets spoke, they spoke to Israel, for Israel, of Israel. 
Whenever the apostles act as the apostles, they are the apostles as the foundation of the church. And even whenever the gospel is declared, as we cast that good news abroad, we know that it's for the sake of those who are the sheep. They might be born again, hearing their shepherd's voice, called out of darkness and into light. So away with the folly of trying to make the Bible goat food. If you have made it palatable to the unbelieving soul, you have already altered the message. Now the word obtained, obtained a faith, is translated received by the Christian Standard Bible, the American Standard Bible. Reason being is this idea of obtaining is by means of the lot falling to you. It's not an obtaining by attaining, but by something falling into your lap. The word is used only three times in the New Testament. Luke 1.9, the lot fell to Zechariah to burn incense in the temple. John 19.24, lots were cast for Jesus' garments. And in Acts 1.17, Peter speaks of Judas's having been allotted his share in this ministry. We read in Acts 16.23 that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. If faith is your lot in this life, it's not because you somehow grasped it of your own doing, but God graciously bequeathed it to you in Christ, such that you can sing with David, the lots have fallen for me in pleasant places. The faith they have obtained is of equal standing. So you ask, with whom? Is this uh, equal standing of Jew and Gentile? That's true. But there's no Jew-Gentile tension anywhere unfolded in this letter. So that's unlikely. Is Peter saying that these saints have obtained a faith of equal standing as that which he has as an apostle? He goes on to speak of this we in verse 16. And the we there is most certainly the we of the apostles. That's a much more likely conclusion, but I think the general principle is just what Peter wants us to hold true. He's not so concerned that you see the contrast is that you realize this. By faith, we all stand equal before God. There are varying degrees of faith given, varying degrees of gifts, and there will be varying degrees of reward. But ultimately, how you stand before God as children of faith, is on an equal plane. Thomas Watson said, A weak faith can lay hold on a strong Christ. A palsied hand may tie the knot in marriage. It is not the quality of your faith or the quantity of your faith that determines how you stand before God. It is the object 
of your faith. John Bunyan was long tormented in his soul concerning how he stood before a holy and just God. And in his autobiography, he relates that as one day, one day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest, uh, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants my or He lacks my righteousness. For that was just before Him. I saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I home, also rejoicing for the grace and love of God. So when I came home, I looked to see if I could find that sentence, Thy righteousness is in heaven. But could not find such a saying. Wherefore, my heart began to sink again. Only that was brought to my remembrance. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Jesus Christ who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By this word, I saw the other sentence true. Thy righteousness is in heaven. We stand equal by, or in is the better translation in my opinion. We stand, right to, we, we stand on this equal footing in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you trust in Christ, His righteousness is imputed, counted, reckoned as yours. Romans 5.18 tells us that when Adam sinned, his guilt, his Sin was counted as ours. That one sin led to condemnation for all. And then it says, as by that one man and his sin, guilt and condemnation came upon all, so by one man's righteousness, many will be justified. Counted just and righteous before God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told that God made him to be no sin, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Warfield wrote that it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in any other Savior or in this or that philosophy or human conceit or in any other gospel than that of Jesus Christ and him crucified brings not salvation but a curse. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively, 
not in the act of faith, or the attitude of faith, or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. Equal standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, it's because of where these people stand covenantally in Christ, with Him as their head, counted, reckoned righteous in Him. It's because of that that Peter says to them what he says. Not because of where they are geographically, but because of where they are covenantally. It's for this reason that Peter can say to them, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. As you read the New Testament, this is always the most important address. Where you stand in relation to God, in Christ or in Adam, that's always the most important address. Paul opens Ephesians saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are saints. They're set apart in Christ by the Spirit. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's far more important than that they are in Ephesus. You may not be in Ephesus, Rome, or Corinth. You may not reside in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia. But if you are in Christ, these apostolic words, these words of the risen and ruling Christ through His messenger, speak to you today. And now marvel at the one who is speaking to you, the one in whom you stand. He is Jesus. This is the name of our Savior as given to Joseph to name that virgin conceived child in the womb of his betrothed. It speaks of his humanity. And yet He is our God and Savior, Jesus. The construction of the original phrase makes it clear that there are not two persons being spoken of here. It's not our God and Jesus. It's our God and Savior, Jesus. One of the Scripture's clearest instances of speaking of Christ's divinity. The one in whom you stand is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. And this God-man is the Christ. Meaning He's God's prophet, priest, and king representing and ministering on behalf of the people God has given Him. And thus it is as He acts so that He is our Savior. This one in whom you stand, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ is addressing you through His minister. And marvel at what He expresses 
to us. This isn't just Peter's desire. You understand this. He's acting as an apostle. This is what our Lord would have us hear. And he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. This is a common blessing in the New Testament. But it speaks of no common grace. This is God's special grace for those He's called out of darkness and into the light of Christ. Grace, simply our favor with God. It means more than that you have God's heart. It means that in, 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 in that, you have God. All that He is. You have God when you stand in His grace and favor. And with this, you have peace. Behind the, the Greek word peace here is the Hebrew idea of shalom. And the idea of shalom has much more than simply the absence of something. Enmity, animosity, strife, war, contention. Shalom is as much the presence of something as it is the absence of something. It means things being set right. It means you have God. Now, we have peace and grace in Christ. We have them. There's this objective reality, this certainty, this, this position in which we stand with God. In Christ, grace and peace. And so Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is real. But what Peter desires here, and what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ desires here, is that grace and peace be multiplied. To us. If our feet are in the ocean, Peter would have the tide to rise and the waves to swell. If we're just sprinkled Presbyterians, he would have us be immersed Baptist. He wants grace to flow upon grace. The Apostle John tells us from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's that upon that. Peter is speaking of in this word multiplied. For those God redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb, He would have the Spirit overshadow, protect, and lead them. For those He so given the Spirit, He would bring them to Mount Sinai where He would reveal His glory and give Him His law that they might be conformed to His image. And for such as He's shown Himself, He would bring them to the promised land flowing with milk and honey where He might dwell with them and they be His people and He their God. You see, with God, it's never just grace. It's always grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. When God gives you Jesus, He gives you the fountain of all blessing. He gives you the one that Paul speaks of as God's yes to His every promise. And this increase in grace and peace come in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And now, at this point, the standard apostolic blessing begins to grow peculiar and hint at the theme of this letter. Did you notice how often we saw words like knowledge, knowing, 
No. And remember, Peter wanting to bring these things to their mind. And then you note that this, this kind of verbiage forms an inclusio. That's a kind of verbal parentheses that bracket the meat of this letter. Peter in verse 18 of chapter 3 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the false teachers that are mentioned throughout the bulk of this letter, the body of this letter in verses 2 and 3, hate multiplication. And they hate the addition of verses 5 through 7. You might have in an older translation, add to your faith virtue. Here you have supplement. The false teachers hate this multiplication and addition. They want to subtract from this knowledge and thus divide the body. You see, it's in knowing Christ that grace and peace are multiplied. You show me a Christian wrestling with doubt and fears, and I will show you one who has not sat under the ministry of the Word, who does not read the Bible, who is ignorant concerning theology and truth of Christ and His salvation. Grace and peace are multiplied in knowing. Now, this is a knowledge that's not opposed to the mind, and, and, and though it is certainly more than the mind, it begins in the mind, but it, it's not limited there. This is an experiential kind of relational knowledge. So say your spouse is a well-known philanthropist. He, he's known as a kind person. But people know this about him. They know he's a kind person. They know he does these things. They know it about him. But you as, as their spouse know their kindness. It's relational. You've experienced it. You see, what, what's, what's happening whenever the saints come to the Word of God is not simply that they're learning about God, but that God, through His apostles, through His prophets, is speaking, showing Himself, revealing Himself. It's relational. It's a real knowledge of Himself and His glory and His wonder and His attributes and His acts. See, what it means for grace and peace to be multiplied to us is to grow in the knowledge of God and our, of our Savior. To grow in, in grace and peace means to grow in God. Knowing Him, fellowshipping with Him, communing with Him. It means enjoying our God more. In 3.1, Peter speaks of this as his second letter. And while that doesn't necessarily mean that this is the follow-up to 1 Peter. That these form a pair. That he's addressing the exact people. The same audience. That's not necessarily the case. I, I think there's much to, to lend credit to that idea. As we see these same themes pop up in both. Specifically the eschatology and judgment aspect that comes to the foreign front. But if these do indeed form a pair. Written to the same audience originally. Then in the first letter, Peter was writing to the church concerning the outside threat of persecution from the Gentiles. 
And now in the second letter, he's writing to them concerning this inside threat of false teaching. And so it is with this new threat of false teaching within the church that he takes up the pen to write to them and expresses this peculiar blessing that grace might be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Christ. So here you have an apostle, the highest office within the church, giving us the very words of the Lord of the church, the one in whom we stand. And in light of the threat of false teaching, his desire is that grace and peace might be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Saints, look around. See the false teaching that is so rampant and destroying souls eternally. See it. But may we look to this letter of our Lord through His messenger, knowing that His desire is that grace and peace be multiplied to us in the knowledge of Him. So let us come to this letter with faith. Faith in the one in whom we stand, righteous. Faith that there's not only grace here for us, but there's grace upon grace upon grace that we might stand firm despite the threat of false teaching and we might be faithful to our Lord unto the end. This is no backwater fishing hole. This is an ocean of grace upon grace. It is the false teachers who would have us drink from stagnant waters. By God's grace in Christ in whom we stand. May it not be so. Let's pray. Holy Father. I pray we're coming to this letter, this study in the weeks ahead, seeing the need for grace and peace to be multiplied in the knowledge of you and your Son. Father, may we walk away from this. More resolute because of your grip on us. Eyes open, joyously rejecting false bread, false hope, because of what we know we have in Christ. In His name, Amen.